This is Dr. Benny Tate, and I would like to thank you for tuning in to this week's message at Rock Springs Church. Wherever you are, I hope that this message encourages you and helps you grow in your walk with God. Here's this week's message from Rock Springs Church. at now for three weeks. We'll look at it one more week. This is what the Bible says. It says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. The Old Testament was written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. If I was going to paraphrase that verse, folks, I'd paraphrase it like this. It's wise to learn from experience, but it's wiser to learn from the experience of others and not near as painful. It's wise to learn from experience, but it's wiser to learn from the experience of others and not near as painful. And what I want us to do, I want us to do what we've been doing for two weeks, and we're going to look at lives of people in the Old Testament. Today, we're going to look at Abraham, and we're going to look at how we can learn from it. I want to talk to you about Abraham today. Abraham, God's friend. Abraham, God's friend. I read a story one time about two guys that were out in the woods. They were actually on a mountainside, and they were hiking. And while they was out there hiking, they encountered a grizzly bear, this massive bear. So those guys started running and running and running. It's pretty obvious it looked like the the bear was going to catch them. And one guy just stopped. And his friend said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm taking off my hiking boots, and I'm going to put on my tennis shoes. He said, taking off your hiking boots and putting on your tennis shoes, you certainly, you don't think you can outrun that bear, do you? He said, I'm not trying to outrun the bear. I'm just trying to outrun you. Amen? (laughs) Well, folks, we've all had friends like that. But, you know, I thought about this man, Abraham. Abraham. You know, it was said of uh, David that David was a man after God's own heart. And it was said of Enoch that Enoch walked with God. But there was something said about this guy that was not said about anybody else in the Bible. It was said that he was God's friend. He was God's friend. Can you imagine today, perhaps you walked into a restaurant today to have lunch, and somebody said, who is that lady that walked in? And somebody said, I'll tell you who it is. That's Sally. She's God's friend. She's God's friend. Who who is that guy over there? Well, that's Benny. That's Benny. I mean, I wish. I'm not saying that, but, but, but that's Benny. He's God's friend. Don't you wish it could be said of you? That's, when people see you, they would say of you, that's God's friend. What a, what a compliment, folks. I'd rather be a friend of God as a friend of anybody's. And it's said of him, he's God's friend. Now, I began to process that when I read it, and I thought, what was so unique about Abraham? What separated him from everybody else? And I found something unique. I found as I studied this man's life, everywhere Abraham went, he built an altar. Everywhere this guy would go, he would build an altar. Now, let me say something, folks. An altar is a place of surrender. An altar is a place of sacrifice. I want you to know, that can be an altar, but also your couch can be an altar. 
Your bed can be an altar. The place you're sitting right now can be an altar. Your car seat can be an altar. Your workplace can be an altar. It's any place that becomes a place of surrender. It's a place that becomes a place of sacrifice. See, I believe this about an altar. An altar is a place where you grab hold of God and God grabs hold of you. An altar is a place where you grab hold of God and God grabs hold of you. I want you to understand, an altar in your personal life will alter your personal life. An altar in your family will alter your family. And I looked at this man's life, and I said, that's it. He was always building an altar. So what I want to take a few moments and do is I want us to look at those altars. Because, folks, I hope, listen, I don't study and pray and, and fast just for it to go in one ear and out the other. I mean that I try to give you practical things that you can leave here and say, listen, I'm not convinced he's that smart. But I am convinced that he talks in a language that I can understand and he gives me practical things that I can apply to my life and I can be a better person because of what the pastor preached. So that's, that's what I'm saying. So, so listen to what I'm saying. There's five altars that every person needs. Let me explain. Number one is the first altar. The first altar. Now, Abraham lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. It was modern-day Iraq. And let me explain. His father was a man by the name of Terah. And what they did there in that place, Ur of the Chaldeans, they worshipped false gods. They worshipped the sun. Their chief god was the moon. And he was referred, his name, his name was Sin. It was a polytheistic society. That is just to say, everybody there just had multiple, multiple gods. You say, that's far-fetched. If we're not awful careful, folks, we'll be in the same boat. That's all I'm going to say. Multiple, multiple gods. But the Bible says in Genesis 12 and 1 that God spoke to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees. I really want you to end up 1,500 miles away because I want you to go to Canaan land. And he gets to Canaan land, ladies and gentlemen, because he realizes there's only one God. It's Yahweh. There's only one true God. And by the way, folks, the only way to God is Jesus Christ. He's not a good way. He's not a better way. He's not even the best way. He's the only way, Jesus Christ. So he gets there. And according to verse 7, the first thing he does is he builds an altar to God. See, folks, there has to be a first altar in your life, in your life, in your life, in your life, and in my life. In every one of our lives, there has to be a first altar. I've said a thousand times, I wasn't raised in church. From the earliest I can remember, we ran a package store. 
We sold alcohol six days a week. We closed on Sunday because that, at that time you couldn't sell it on Sunday. And all we did is we moved the operation to our house, and everybody came to the house on Sunday, and we sold everybody alcohol from the house. Very, very dysfunctional. We in no way was involved in church, nightclubs, taverns. That's what we lived in. 16 years of age, my mother goes into a deep depression. She has a relationship that goes south, realizes that life's not worth living, planning to end her life, drives 30 miles to her first cousin's house, who she had partied and caroused with for many, many years. Her first cousin comes to the house. She says to my mother, I'm glad to have you, but I want you to know I'm not the person I used to be. I've given my life to Jesus Christ. She had a first altar experience. She said to my mother, you need a first altar experience. You need to know Jesus. Can we call a 25-year-old pastor by the name of Gary Jackson? Gary Jackson, a young 25-year-old pastor, came led my mother to Christ. Her life was radically changed. She pulled up in a red Thunderbird the next morning. She got out of that car. My mother looked different. Her countenance looked different. She said to me, Benny, I haven't raised you right. I haven't been the mother I should have been. We shouldn't have lived the places. We've never gone to church, but I should have had you in church. We should have lived a different life. And I got saved last night, and my mother started praying for me. She prayed month after month after month after month. And by the way, let me say this, folks. If you're praying for somebody, don't give up. Don't give up. You may be the only hope they've got. You may be the only hope they've got. You may be the person that loves them the most. So, so don't give up. And my mother kept praying. And one night about midnight, I said, Mama, I am miserable. I was doing things that my mother didn't know about. But I said, Mama, I am miserable. I have, I'm empty inside. She said, Benny, you need the Lord. Let me call the pastor Clayton Jones. She called the pastor Clayton Jones. Clayton said, Benny, you got to pray. And if I live to be 100, I looked at Clayton Jones, this great man of God, and I said, Clayton, I don't know how to pray. He said, take my hands. Put your hands in my hands. I put my hand in Clayton's hands, and Clayton said, tell him you're a sinner. I said, God, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. He said, Benny, you tell him you're sorry for your sin. I said, God, I'm so sorry for my sin. I'm sorry. He said, Benny, you tell him that you believe that Jesus died on that cross for your sins. I said, I sure will, Clayton. I said, Jesus, I believe you died on that cross for my sins. He said, you tell him now, Benny, that you confess all your sins to him. I said, Jesus, I confess all my sins, everything I've ever done. Lord, I, I confess to you right now. He said, you ask him to forgive you. I said, please forgive me. Then Clayton looked at me and he said, he just forgave you. <laughs> You're saved. Let me tell you something, folks. This, I'm not trying to make a Methodist out of you or a Baptist out of you or a Pentecostal. All that stuff is man-made anyway, by the way. But every person has to have a first altar experience. A first altar. Abraham had to have that first altar. And I challenge you today, if you don't know the Lord, you've got to have that first altar experience. You've got to have that first altar experience. But you know, I, I noticed something. He didn't stop with that first altar experience. He moved to a second altar I call it the family altar. Look what he said. He said, and he removed from thence unto a mountain of the east of Beth, look, and pitched his tent. Now, you got to realize, why did he pitch his tent? Because Sarah and his nephew Lot were with him. And the Bible says he pitched his tent having Bethel on the west. And he built an altar and he called on the name of the Lord. It was a family altar. I remember uh, 
when we dedicated Savannah Abigail, there was a preacher who dedicated her. His name was Dr. Ed Ballou. He was an Indian right over there in the old church. He had a finger that long. And that old Indian preacher that I loved, I'm sitting down on the front row somewhat intimidated, and old Ed stands and he points that finger, and I thought I felt it touch my nose. I mean, he, he, he points that finger, and he said, Benny, Benny boy, and he could call me Benny boy. He said, Benny boy, don't you just pray for this girl. You pray with this girl. Don't you just pray for this girl. Benny, you pray with this girl. I want you to know something, folks. A family altar will alter many families. And a lack of it, a lack of it is obvious too. A woman and husband invited the pastor and the associate pastor and the music worship leader all to their house for lunch one day. They was getting ready to have lunch, and the mom looked over to Sissy, six years old, and said, Sissy, pray the prayer. And Sissy, six years old, said, Mama, I don't know what to say. She said, well, just say what you've heard me say. <laughs> and Sissy said, my God, why did I invite all these people over to my house? <laughs> One out of two families ended in divorce. One out of every two. But did you know Billy Graham's organization said one out of every 1,014 Christian families end in divorce? And I said, well, what constitutes a Christian family? Where, where a husband and wife daily pray together. Let me tell you something, folks. I'm not a, I, I've not always been in sackcloth and ashes, but I want to encourage you parents. I want to encourage you parents, before those children go off to school, pray with them. Pray for them. Place your hands upon them. All their lives, pray Hebrew blessing upon them. Just pray blessing upon your children. A first altar, a family altar. Always, always do that. You know what was interesting to me when I went back to that verse? It says, uh, he built the altar at Bethel. You know what Bethel means in the Bible? It means house of God. It means house of God. He realized his family needed to be in the house of God. Folks, I know I, you, I want to say to dads and moms, get your family. I thank God for the streaming ministry. And it's wonderful if you're on vacation. It's wonderful if you're physically unable to be in church. But let me tell you something. If you're physically able, you don't stay home and stream. And maybe make an injection. If you're able to go to Belk and Dillard's and Walmart and everywhere else, you're able to go to church. I mean, I don't mean it right. If you're able to go, come on, get real. Yeah. I mean, you say, well, I'm, I'm streaming. Well, look, folks, I want, I want you to know something. I want you to know something. This is the most, maybe the most important thing I'll say. I, I, I prepared more material than I have time. 
I, I, I've got a habit of doing that since I've turned 40. <laughs> There's the omnipresence of God. God's everywhere. You know, somebody said, somebody said to me, Pastor, does God, does God hear a sinner's prayer? <laughs> God hears everything. I mean, you know what I'm trying to say. There's the omnipresence of God. Now, look, there's the inner presence of God. God's inside of us through the Holy Spirit. But, folks, there's the manifested presence of God. There's the manifested presence of God that when we come to God's house, God says this, I'll meet with you. You say, Pastor, where do you get that? Well, look what the Bible says. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God said, you come to church because when you get there, that's the place where I want to meet with you. I'm not meeting you necessarily in front of you when you're in your PJs eating your bonbons, but I will meet with you when you come to the house of God. Here's all I'm going to say, folks, because you experience God's presence, and God's presence is what you need more than anything else. God's presence is what your children need more than anything else. Now, wait. We got a first altar. We got a family altar, but let me tell you, then Abraham had a forgiveness altar. Abraham, he's a... He's on his way, and the Bible says there's a famine in the land. And he looks over at Sarah, and he says, Sarah, we got to go to Egypt. Now, Sarah was 65 years old. I didn't see her, but apparently she was a combination of Wonder Woman and Betty Crocker. <laughs> she was just, a, I mean, she was just a, a, a knockout. But let me tell you, get this down. What made her beautiful? 1 Peter 3 and 4 said it was not the outer, but it was the inner. I talked with a young man this week about a relationship. And I said, let me say this. Don't so concentrate on the outer because every bit of that is going to pass. You better fall in love, not fall in lust. Because every bit of that is going to pass over a period of time. I said to Barbara on one occasion, I said, Barbara, will you love me when I'm old and gray? She said, yes, I do. Yes, I do. One lady said to her husband, will you love me when I'm old and gray? He said, honey, I've loved you through four other shades. Amen. I've loved you through four other shades. <laughs> he said, now, look, we're getting ready. We're getting ready to go into to Egypt. And he said, Sarah, the Egyptian king, the Egyptian law says if he sees a woman and she's attractive and he wants her, he can kill the husband. And he said, you know, I love me. And he said, so what we're going to do when we go in there, you tell them that you're my sister. You tell them you're my sister. So they go in and they say, who is that? And he says, this is my sister. And Pharaoh says, sounds good to me. <laughs> and then Pharaoh looks at her and he says, Sarah, are, are your feet tired? She said, my feet tired. 
He said, yeah, you've been running through my mind all day. All right, all right. He said, now, I, I, I want you to come into my house. And that's a good line, right? And so, uh, so he, I want you to come into my house. So listen to this. She comes in. He gets her, and this is what happens. Pharaoh and everybody in his house gets deadly sick because God sent a plague on him. God sent a plague on him. Now, you say, Pastor Benny, I, I need to get a principle. I need to get a point out of this. Right here's the point. You leave another man's wife alone. Amen. You leave another woman's husband alone. The one that God's got for you is the one that you're married to. You know, uh, somebody said, you know, there was Adam and Eve and there was Cain and Abel. And Cain goes, one guy said, Cain goes out in the land of Nod and, you know, marries somebody. And, you know, there was nobody but Adam and Eve and Cain. Did he marry his sister? Who, who did Cain marry? I said, right there's a the problem. <laughs> you get in trouble when you start worrying about another man's wife. <laughs> and you know what that king said? You take her and you get out of here. I wish you had told me the truth. If you had told me she was your wife, there's no way I would have taken her into my home. There's no way if you just told me the truth. Now, look here. Here's all I want you to see. Abraham messed up greatly. And here's what I know about every one of us. There are going to be times you're going to mess up. There are going to be times, folks, we're going to mess up. There's so much bad in the best of us, and there's so much good in the worst of us, it hardly behooves any of us to talk about the rest of us. Now, you're going to mess up. You're, you say, no, 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 God forgave you. You didn't become perfect. You're going, you say, well, Pastor Benny, I'm, uh, I, I'm perfect. Oh, God help you. Anyway, <laughs> there's going to be times that you're going to mess up. But I want you to see what Abraham did. Look at the Scripture. He goes back to Bethel. He goes back to Bethel. And he builds an altar in the name of the Lord. You know the good news, folks? 1 John 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I just want you to understand there's always a forgiveness altar. No matter what you've done, there's always a forgiveness altar that God is willing to forgive you. He's, you said, Pastor, I've messed up badly. It, it didn't matter. I just want you to know that God, you say, but my, my friend won't forgive me. My wife won't forgive me. I, I don't know about all that, but I know God will forgive you. I know you're not beyond God's forgiveness. And I know there's a forgiveness altar. No matter what you've done, God is willing to wipe your slate clean. There's a first altar. There's a family altar. There's a forgiveness altar. And I've got to move right quickly. There's a fellowship altar. There's a fellowship altar. You know, after Abraham got right with God, Genesis 13 and 18 says he builds another altar. What he does, uh, we're going to hold that scripture for just a minute, but he says, Lot, we've got to separate. We've got to separate. And the Bible says Lot pitched his tents towards Sodom because the land looked real fertile. Now, this is all I'm going to say, folks. 
The grass was green down there in Sodom, but it was over a septic tank. No, no, it looked, it looked real green. And Lot went down there, by the way, folks, and, and, and lost his family down there. Oh, it looked good to the eyes. It looked, it looked appeasing. But always remember this. Sin will fascinate, then it will assassinate. Sin will thrill, then it will kill. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and make you pay more than you ever thought about paying. He said, oh, it looks good. Oh, it looks good. You better be careful, folks. Now, I don't know who I'm speaking to, but you better be careful talking about it looks good. It looking good will get you in trouble. It feels so right. It may feel so right, but it may be so wrong. If you're just guided by your emotions, you're going to get in trouble. But you know what? Abraham said we need to part. Now, I don't know, folks, but I'm, I, I really believe I'm preaching a Rima word. But I'm telling you something. He said, we got to part. And if you want to make your life count for God, there's certain people you got to part with. There's certain people that you've just got to part with. You said, no, 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 I, I, listen, you can have an inner circle. Listen, I've got an inner circle and I've got an outer circle. I've got lost friends in the outer circle. But I, my outer circle is never going to become my inner circle. If your outer circle becomes your inner circle, you're going to get in trouble. You said, Pastor Benny, I, all I hang out, no, no, no. If all you hang out with is a bunch of lounge lizards at the Crystal Pistol, you're going to get in trouble. You better find you some people that love God. You better find you some people that know how to get in touch with heaven. You better get some godly people around you, folks. You better get some godly people around you. You know what the word Hebron means? It means fellowship. Here's what I've learned. We all need a fellowship altar. Just an altar, folks, where we get to know God. My, my fellowship altar is in my office in my bathroom. I've got a rug there. If you open my bathroom door, I'm a simple guy, and you that very first rug, this is what it says. Have you prayed today? I, I don't need a bunch of trinkets around me. I need thinkets around me. And it says, if you prayed today, and each day I've got a chair there, and that's where I spend time with God. Because I'd rather be with God with anybody. He's my best friend. I don't know that I'm his best friend, but he's my best friend. We need a fellowship altar. Let me give you the last one and I'm done. We need a faith-giving altar. There was one other altar. It was in Genesis 22 and 9 where God said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to offer him up on an altar. Now, I said this, folks. I said, God wanted to know if Abraham loved him more than anything. But God knows everything, folks. God wanted Abraham to know who was number one in his life. God wanted Abraham to know who was number one in his life. And he places him there on the altar. And he says, God, 
I'm willing to sacrifice him for you. And he pulls out a knife, and he's getting ready to do it. And the angel says, Abraham, don't do it. Don't do it. I realize that you love me more than anything else. And Abraham looks his eyes up. He lifts his eyes up, and there's a ram caught in the thicket. I feel like God showed me something this week. It was caught by briars, thorns, that ram was. It probably symbolized the crown that was put on Jesus, a crown of thorns. But I thought about something else. That ram was caught by its horns. His body was not because the sacrifice has to be without spot or without blemish. And Abraham said, I'm willing to do it. And God said, uh, you don't have to. Now look, folks, if we could talk to Abraham after that, Abraham would have said to us, it was the hardest thing in my life. But when I went to that altar, God got me through it. Now, as I was really just studying this this week, it just, I never read thought about this before. But if you read this, shortly after this, Abraham buries his wife, Sarah. And you know what I believe? He said, God, I can get through it because I had that faith-giving altar. And what God wants to do, he wants to build faith in our hearts. He wants to build faith in our hearts. And he brings us to a faith-giving altar because he wants to build that faith in our hearts. And he wants us to know that we can trust him for our provision. We can trust him for our situations. We can trust him for our circumstances. He's Jehovah Jireh. He's Jehovah, he's Jehovah Rapha. He's Jehovah Sidkenu. He's enough that we can trust him. I've been around a long time. And in the late 80s, there was a song that I used to listen to. And if I could sing, I'd just sing it right now, but I can't. But this is the song. It says, the service is nearing an end. The choir is singing just as I am. And now that old song is played. People at the altar are kneeling down to pray. Some are finding mercy, forgiveness for their sin. Some are fighting battles they're struggling to win. The time has come to give them to the Lord. That's what this altar is for. That's what this altar is for. You don't have to carry those burdens anymore. There's a light in the darkness. There's a love that's true. Jesus is waiting. He's waiting here for you. Go quickly now before they close the door. That's what, what this altar is for. And then verse 2 says, A father is praying with his son. A mother kneels beside them. 
thanking God they've come. An old man is standing there in tears, giving up a part of him that he's held back for years. Hearts are being broken. Lives are being changed. And those who call upon him will never be the same. <laughs> That's what this altar's for. You don't have to carry those burdens anymore. There's a light in the darkness. There's a love that's true. Jesus is waiting. He's waiting here for you. 30 years ago, right over there in a the little church, I came to the very first service. Barbara, you remember when we walked in? Green shag carpet. Barbara said, you think it's a sign your favorite color is green, Benny? Green shag carpet. Nobody's in the building. Barbara and I walk in. And I run down front. I run down front. And I said, Barbara, I've never preached in Georgia. I don't know anything about them. But you know, Barbara, what they've got down front? She said, what? I said, they've got two altars. So tonight when I preach, apparently they believe in the altar because they've got altars. Folks, I want you to know, I still believe in an altar. I still believe we need a first altar. I still believe we need a family altar. Many times in my life, I've needed a forgiveness altar. I thank God for a fellowship altar. And I thank God for a faith-giving altar. Friend, I trust the message today has spoken to your heart. And if you've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior, I want to challenge you to do that today. It's the greatest decision you'll ever make. And I've often said, it's as simple as ABC. A stands for acknowledge. You've got to acknowledge that you're a sinner. B stands for believe. You've got to believe that Christ and His blood was shed on the cross for your sin. And then C, you simply must confess your sins to Him. I want to encourage you right now to repeat a simple prayer with me. I'll pray the prayer. You repeat it with me if you'd like to accept Christ as your personal Savior. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. But God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm so sorry I want to change. I believe that you died for my sin, and I confess my sin to you right now. Come into my heart, Lord, and forgive me of all my sin. Now, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. Thank you for coming in to my life. Amen. Friend, congratulations on the greatest decision that you'll ever make. And I want you to know this decision is not based on how you feel right now because God's not a feeling. He's a fact. 
This decision is based on the fact that you have done what God's Word says you must do to have eternal life. So congratulations on the greatest decision you'll ever make. And thank you for being with us today. God bless you, and we'll see you soon.